Joe worked at this office where, every now and then, the office manager would bring her nine-year-old to work. Good kid. Kind of tomboyish. And she would just kind of help out around the office. She would pass mail out. And over the, over the time that I was there, she and I developed this really this kind of teasing relationship. She would come into my office, and she would drop my mail off and stick her tongue out at me, and I would sort of fake chase her down the hallway or something. And, you know. That's sweet. Um, yeah, yeah. She was an incredibly sweet kid. And so there's this day when uh, it's early in the morning. I've arrived at the office, and uh, and I go into the bathroom. Um, and when I come out of the bathroom, I have my glasses in my shirt pocket rather than on my head. And I look down this hallway, and I see um, this small person walking towards me. And I then um, get down and start to crab walk towards her. So I so I sort of go down on my haunches, and. Um, and put my hands up as if they're claws and kind of waddle, waddle towards her. And as I'm waddling towards her, I say in this kind of creepy voice, Oh, no, I can't believe you're here today. And then at that moment, as, as I say, today, she comes into focus. And I realize, in fact, it's not at all the young girl who I thought it was, but it's, in fact, one of our interns, a business intern who... Um, uh, who is a, a, a midget. And so she comes into focus, and I see her, and I'm horrified, and I go bolt upright, and I stand up, and I say, oh, my, my God, I'm terribly sorry. I, 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 I thought you were somebody else. And I think to myself, who could she possibly think that somebody <laughs> else is? <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder at the time, should I have tried to explain it to her? And it seems to me like one of those situations where it only gets worse the more you try to explain it. The only thing I could do is, in fact, apologize and then end all contact with her forever right there. Joel <laughs> <laughs> says the woman was utterly gracious. She introduces herself. She tries to put him at ease. But Joel says not only did he cringe when this happened... He cringes every single time he tells the story. People cringe when they hear the story. And why? Seriously, why? What is it about certain stories that get this physical reaction out of us? You know what I mean? Like, what are the physical reactions we ever actually give a story? There's laughing. There's crying. There's cringing. It's in the top three. Well, this week at our radio show, This American Life, we have looked into this matter. And I have to say, if there is scientific literature, specifically on the physiology or psychology of cringing, we and many helpful doctors and researchers were unable to find it. But from examining a wide array of cringe stories, we have made some tentative conclusions about what it is that makes us cringe. Consider, please, Howie's story. It was his sixth grade graduation dance. There had been one teacher, Mrs. S., who had been really cruel to him all year long. He was chubby, and she used to examine his papers for food stains, which then she would hold up and show the entire class. She'd mock him in front of class up to the day of the graduation dance. As we're in line, she's like, okay, you know, you're all going to high school. I want you to be good. And then she kind of stops. She says, well, I don't know if we're all going to high school. She says, I don't know. What do you think, kids? Do you think Howard should pass? And then all of a sudden, my heart dropped into my stomach. What do you mean? I'm a, she, yeah, yeah, let him pass, let him pass. I don't know. I don't know if we should let Howard pass. It's up to you, kids. It's up to you. Should Howard pass? Yes, yes. Should he pass? Yes, yes, I don't know. 
That was humiliating, but that is not the part of the story that makes him cringe. The cringe part happens when, dressed in his best Saturday Night Fever tight pants and polyester shirt, he takes matters into his own hands. He takes action. At the end of the dance, relieved that he is in fact graduating, he finds her in the teacher's lounge. So I walk in, I'm feeling good, I'm smiling, I'm strutting around, my jaw travolta clothes, you know, I grab my jacket and uh, kind of picture this really, you know, sweaty, fat little kid, you know, clothes plastered to his body. Mrs. S, who'd been so cruel, is standing with another Mrs. S, the French teacher. I basically bowed to the French teacher and I said, Enchanté, Madame S. And then I looked at the other Mrs. S and I went, Thank you so much, Mrs. S. And I took a deep bow. I actually waved my arm underneath my waist, bowing deep to my knees, you know, getting up, flipping my jacket with one finger over my shoulder and doing a Jackson 5 spin around and strut it out, thinking I was the coolest. I remember that when I bowed, you know, and I said, you know, enchanté and all this, I remember their faces. And they were... They were disgusted. Like, there wasn't a smile. There wasn't, like, some kind of, like, oh, thank you. They, it was basically silence, this kind of stern, down-at-the-mouth kind of, like, ugh. The things that she did to him were just humiliating, he says. It was the fact that he decided to thank her for it. That's what makes him cringe. And this seems to be true of a lot of cringe stories. The people in them go out of their way to embarrass themselves. In Joel's case, to get back to the guy crab-walking in the office... If he had just come out of the men's room with his fly open, for example, that would have been embarrassing. But he went further. He made a special effort. A part of him was proud that he was the one adult in the office cool enough to goof around with the little kid. And pride, my friend, go with before I cringe. And, you know, you're in your office, and then suddenly you're just like, you know, I'm in a pretty good mood today, and I'm ready to goof around a little. I'm going to crouch down by these mailboxes, and I'm going to walk like a crab towards her down the hallway. You know, this is a stuffy place full of stuffy people. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and I'm still a pretty fun guy. You cringe in that moment of revelation when you suddenly see that maybe you are not the fun guy. When you see yourself as others see you. And it is not pretty. One of the doctors that we talked to about cringes for this week's show pointed out that a cringe is basically the human body cowering in fear for an instant. And he said that one of the most fearsome, stressful things that we can encounter as people is the thought that we are not who we think we are. The thought that the world sees us differently than we see ourselves. And not in a good way. Well, our program today, as always, from WBEZ Chicago, distributed by Public Radio International. Today on our show, an investigation into stories that make us cringe. Act one, what we cringe about when we cringe about love. Nancy Updike explains the peculiar characteristics of a cringe love affair. Act two, mash notes, in which I tell a story from my own past that I actually spent two decades trying to forget about a week that I had back in 1979 on the set of a television show. Also in that story, why I hope to never run into Alan Alda on the street. Act three, Ariel Sharon, Shimon Perez, David Ben-Gurion, and me, the story of one teenager's cringeworthy dream become prime minister of a nation in which he does not even reside. Act four, cringe and purge. We have a story from Bruce J. Friedman about a man who tries to rid himself of a decades-old cringe, if that is really possible. Stay with us. Act one, what we cringe about when we cringe about love. 
If cringing is basically shrinking from something dangerous or painful, what could be more potentially dangerous and painful than love? Nancy Updike has this report on the characteristics and bylaws of cringe love. A cringe love story always starts with a one-liner. I went out with a guy whose role models were Jean Genet and Clint Eastwood. I once went out with this alcoholic, and uh, I guess I just didn't realize he was an alcoholic because he was doing so much cocaine at the time. I once dated a guy who three months after we broke up slept with both his stepmother and his stepsister. You probably noticed these are all women. That's because cringe love stories are usually embarrassing. And I'm generalizing here, but in my experience, women like telling embarrassing love stories. We bond over them. We like to one-up each other. You did that for love? Well, I did this. And while I'm generalizing, let me also say that as far as I can tell, the most common cringe love story is the kind that takes place in your early 20s with a guy not that much older, and you are new at love. It's not your first relationship, but everything about your romantic self still feels on loan from somewhere else. Movies, rumors, your friends. You don't quite know who you are yet when it comes to love, because you're still becoming that person. And everything these early 20s cringe love stories have to teach us, we can learn from a woman from Texas named Julie. I once went out with a guy who, while we were dating, joined the Hare Krishnas. So how did he how did he tell you this? Well, we started going to um, Prashadam, which is this thing the Krishnas do on Sundays. They have this big feast, and basically it was a way to get free food. Free food is very important in this story. The reason is that Julie's boyfriend was a squatter. Do you know what that is? For years, in cities all over the country, people have been taking over abandoned buildings and living in them. Squatting. People do it for a lot of reasons. Anti-corporate idealism, adventure, lack of interest in getting a job. Julie's boyfriend was a middle-class kid from New York who, when they met, was squatting in an abandoned warehouse in Austin, Texas, bartering, hitchhiking, and keeping an eye out for free food. Julie, at the time, lived in an air-conditioned apartment and drove an Oldsmobile. She was in her last year of college. We used to go around whenever I wanted pizza. We couldn't order pizza. We had to go to all the pizza places and ask for mistakes because he didn't believe in paying for anything. And he used to say that when we did that, that I couldn't go in because I looked too much like a sorority girl, which I'm not, but, you know, he said I looked like one. So squatter guy meets college girl, a princess, he'd call her, and they fall in love during an AIDS outreach workshop. A lot of cringe love stories take this form. Living on the edge guy meets suburban girl. They move in together to her bourgeois apartment. He takes her on midnight bike rides. She buys him dinner in real restaurants. He spare changes on the corner to take them out for ice cream. And every week, they go to Prashadam to get a free vegetarian meal from the Hare Krishnas. And then one day he came home, and he said he thought he'd like to, after Prashadam, and he said he thought he'd like to go to classes in the morning. They had classes where you could learn more about Krishna consciousness. And I said that that was cool. I wasn't really interested in it. So he started going to classes. That's how it started. Then he came home and he wanted me to shave his head, which wasn't that big of a deal. I thought it was actually kind of cute. Um, but then he came home and he had the gear. He had a, um, 
this long white sheath they call a dhoti and um, he told me he was going to start wearing that and that's when I started feeling kind of weird about it. We started fighting, we started fighting because he had this new belief system, he'd become totally vegan um, so we couldn't go to our favorite restaurants because well, not only was it that he was vegan, but he couldn't go to a place where he didn't know what the emotions of the cook were, like if they were angry, that would get into the food. These were all things he'd picked up in Krishna consciousness. Every relationship that doesn't work out has some problem that can't be solved. With cringe love, it's an embarrassing problem. And looking back, it's not just the problem that makes you cringe. It's how long the relationship continued after this problem could not have been more clear, not only to you, but also to all your friends. That is, if you weren't hiding it from them. And all of this was a secret, you know, from all of my friends. Like, I was, didn't tell any of them anything. But one day I came home, and I had a friend over, and John was there, and I walked in, and my whole living room smelled of incense, and he turned my bookshelf into a shrine to Swami Prabhupada. There was this big, you know, picture, there was candles, there was scarves. And I said, you know, honey, who's that? And he said, that's Swami Prabhupada. And I'm like, okay. And he said, do you want me to take him down? And he gets defensive right away. And I'm like, no, that's cool. I was just wondering who there is a shrine to in my living room. So then later, um, my friend left, and um, we just had this huge, huge fight. And it started because he had these beads, and he'd gotten me these beads. And the Krishnas have these, um, kind of like a rosary, but it's about 20 beads, and you're supposed to um, repeat this mantra. It's out of hair, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Um, you're supposed to repeat it 20 times, you do it 400 times a day. So he's decided that if I do this, that I'll be happy, that all this anger I'm having is because I'm not chanting Hare Krishna and being happy. So I take these beads and I'm like, I'm not going to do this. And he said, why not? Why won't you worship Krishna? This is the moment every cringe relationship comes down to in the end. The point where one person turns to the other and asks a question like, Why not? Why won't you worship Krishna? That's because at the heart of the cringe is a fundamental disagreement in the way you see the world. He's Montague, you're Capulet. He's 60 Minutes, you're Felicity. He's Potato, you're Potato, but you just can't call the whole thing off. Because on paper, the relationship seems so romantic. The very things that make you cringe looking back at the time were just challenges on the path to love. And not just any love, the best kind, impossible love. I mean, there was a point where we were, I wanted to go to law school, and we were talking about moving to San Francisco, and I would go to Bolt, and he would hang out at the airport. Wait a minute, you would go where and he would go to the airport? Bolt, the law school at Berkeley is called Bolt. Okay. And he would go to the airport. I don't understand. The Christians hang out at the airport. <laughs> right. Julie laughs when she tells this now. She knows this story is one of the funniest things that's ever happened to her, and she loves telling it. She savors every absurdity in the story, and every absurd turn within every absurdity. 
But when I talked to her a few days after our interview, she said, you know, it's the weirdest thing. After we talked that night, I went home and cried. For Julie, this relationship was the first time she fell in love. John was different from anyone else she'd ever known. When she had to go out of town the first week after they met, she thought about him every minute. And when I got back, um, he sent me cards from every place in Austin, you know, with my name in them or with like a poem about me in them. I mean, he just pursued me and it was just, um, he was just really romantic and excited. Like we did not go out for a movie and a dinner ever. I think the whole time we dated, not that that's not nice. I mean, you know, that's great and everything, but I remember he wrote me this card from when he went on the hitchhiking trip and he took a picture of me with him and the postcard said, you know, Hey, cheesecake, thanks for the cheesecake pic. <laughs> he said, I show it around to the other guys on the, he was actually train hopping at that point, um, on the train, and he says it solicits envious grunts of approval, but no one says anything boring like she's beautiful. And I just thought, you know, who would write love letters like this? She's reciting these lines from the postcard from memory. It's the only love letter she's kept as she's moved from place to place. But then that's part of it. Her love for him is part of what she's cringing about when she looks back. What's the part of the story that, um, where you cringe most and just think, ugh, why did I do that? I think it was when I ironed the dhoti. Remember the dhoti? That's that long white sheath Julie's boyfriend had started wearing. He asked her one day to iron it. He was 25 feet long, and I ironed the whole thing. So you did iron it? I ironed the dirty. And what did you say to yourself about why you were ironing it? I'm in love. I don't know. <laughs> what do you say when you do stupid shit? You know, I wanted him to look nice for Temple. I didn't want him to be the bad-looking Bakta. <laughs> With the uncool girlfriend. Not wanting to be uncool motivates a surprising number of cringe love stories. I had long talks about cringe love with a few women besides Julie, one of whom once found herself working two jobs to support a boyfriend who spent all day writing in his journal about the affair he was having with someone else. What makes you cringe is not so much that you are in a relationship that now seems ridiculous. It's that you wanted that ridiculous relationship. You got on the train. It was romantic. You were right in there. And you know what could happen again at any time. Who isn't willing to be ridiculous for love? Nancy Updike is one of the producers of our show. At one point during the height of the Monica Lewinsky scandal, Bill Clinton said this to the press about the ongoing investigations and rumors and accusations. I just have to, to try to put this in the little box like I have every other thing that has been uh, said and done and go on and do my job. That's what I'm going to work at.
I think once we get to a certain age, so many things have happened in our lives that make us cringe that it is no longer a box. It's like a whole room full of boxes, any one of which makes us cringe. And what we do is we try to keep the door to that room closed, but the fact is there are so many ways into those rooms. There are so many things that can remind us of the things that we feel ashamed of. For me, six months doesn't pass without at least one nightmare involving the cast and crew of the TV show MASH. Quiet, please. Roll camera. Don't you think it's about time it became an army matter? When I was 20, back in 1979, I spent four days on the set of MASH. I'd written in this letter on National Public Radio Stationery, asking if I could do a story about their show. I watched some film scenes and rehearse lines. Could be a good idea, Hawk. You can be accessory before the fight. That could be very useful, Hawkeye. Oh, you say that? You that say could that? Could be very useful, could Hawkeye. Be very useful, he says. Well, well, I say. Uh, well, okay. We'll let. Let's. We'll let. Okay. Well, okay. We'll let balder heads prevail. I've been an intern at NPR. I'd had short-term jobs on specials and documentaries and on All Things Considered, which meant that I was pretty much skillful enough to get access to official stationery, but not actually skilled enough to know how to do a real story on my own. Recently, I listened to the cassettes of these old interviews for the first time in 20 years, and it was one long cringeathon. I ask them lots of very strange questions on the tapes, questions that uh, usually begin this way. There is the rumbling noise of somebody mishandling a microphone. And then a little rambling preamble before the actual question. One thing that's um, one of the messages. One of the messages that I always get from the show is that every person uh, should be listened to. Every person, you know, should be. Um, it's a very humanitarian, almost a populist sort of sort of message that every person deserves um, deserves some attention. But is there a problem with that with you? Because if you give everybody who knows you now by seeing you on TV some attention, isn't that? Isn't that difficult? I mean, isn't can't the can't there be just a lot of pressure with that? Uh, the answer to that long question is yes, of course. It, and it, uh, it this is the actor who played Klinger in the series. He is unfailingly gracious. In fact, everybody is unfailingly gracious. The stars, the extras, the writers, the crew. In a certain sense, that just makes it worse. It's one thing to be an ass in front of people who are also acting like asses. It is another to hear that you are the one and only idiot in the room. At the time, I didn't really know how exactly to prepare for this kind of story. And in retrospect, I have to say, I probably should have watched the program a little more intensively before going to California. Intensively enough, for example, to correctly pronounce all the characters' names. Okay. Um, well, where should I start? Of all the characters, um, Father Mulcahy seems to have, have remained the most constant over the years. So, How are you pronouncing my name? Father... I have to hear you pronounce it. To make sure you pronounce it right. Okay. Oh, that's good. 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 Well, that's fine. Well, most people I, don't don't see it spelled. Right. Well, no, I think that the spelling bothers people because of the H close to the end. Now, you see, now until I came here and saw a script, I didn't know that, and I always assumed that it was Mulcahy. That's that's what I thought you might have said. It sounded sort of like you said that. I, I mean, believe <laughs> me, I read that and it took me a while. At some point in my brief time working at NPR, I had been told that one way to put people at ease in an interview is to talk a little bit about yourself. If you tell a personal story, they tell a personal story. It's just human nature, I was told. So, these seven hours of tape are filled with one little story after another. 
that I tell about my life. You know, trying to relate and all. One thing that um that happens in radio production, I know, is think of an example. Sometimes we'll be producing something, and um, we had a Halloween special, and we had a genetic engineer. Um, who's one thing um, that I'm just thinking of as you're saying this is when I'm um. I mean, I've written little scripts for um, commercials and for um, plays at schools and things like that. And there's so many times and, that I'm not in the scene, but, but, you know, I give them the dialogue and I sit there and, you know, and they'll say it and I'll say, no, it doesn't sound right, fix it, and, you know, just to do it with the actor. And then they'll do it. And I think to myself, ah, oh, you know, I could do it better. Do you ever what do you, how much, when, I'm, when I think of myself doing any sort of radio show, I mean, I, I feel like I'm trying to, I feel like I've got this audience and I've got these people and, um, I want to talk to him, you know, I want to get myself across. Um, I'm a college sophomore. Literally. What's striking about these questions is that they combine complete naivete with condescension. I am both clueless and I think I know it all. Listening uh, now, it's not the utter presumptuousness of it all that gets to me. It's the awkward moments where I hear myself just saying anything that I can think of clumsy jokes and stories that are half true and this kind of a fake familiar joshing and basically anything else trying to make a connection. I cringe more at that because um, that is absolutely still in me. I hear that still in the interviews that I do now for this radio show. Um, and most of the time we try to cut that out. What we cringe most at are the things we hate most in ourselves. Also horrifying on these tapes are questions whose sheer rudeness I was simply too young and ignorant to understand. Asking some of the extras, do they ever want, you know, speaking parts? Asking one of the show's stars if he really doesn't think to himself sometimes, is this TV stuff really as worthwhile as Shakespeare? Asking Harry Morgan, the great character actor who played Colonel Potter on the show, and who'd been on countless TV shows since the beginning of The Medium, this question. It seems like in, in, in most of your roles, you're... You're always there, but you're never the lead. You're never the center. Why is that? Well, I don't know. Some some people just sort of fall into that category. I, I, I think all my life I've been a supporting character. It didn't occur to the 20-year-old me what it might mean to spend decades as an actor. Doing fine, but not being offered leading man parts. Oblivious, I pressed on. Obviously, you must, you must get the offers. I mean, you must, you know... You've been no. Nobody's offered me the lead in the show. At that point, even I figure it out. What makes a... I'm changing the subject. What makes a, <laughs> what makes a successful um, television show... Again, he is unfailingly gracious. Since then, I've flipped past Harry Morgan's face and old episodes of Dragnet... He shows up sometimes in old black-and-white movies. He's actually in a lot of classics, like Inherent the Wind and High Noon. And every time I'm watching something and he appears, I wins. It's hard to watch. Sometimes out of the blue, I just remember the fact of his existence, and I cringe. Out of all this tape, though, my most cringeworthy line of questions had to do with what I called then the message or the morals of the show. The 20-year-old me seems to have been fixated on this idea that TV and radio should impart big, important ideas to the people all the time. 
Though weirdly, whenever I bring this up on the tapes, I seem somehow to lack the language to express this thought clearly. Here's how I begin my interview with Alan Alda, who won Emmys on MASH for acting and for writing and for directing. Um, well, all your, your recent uh, writing and directing and acting, uh, all the stories have very, um, they, they show a lot of human, human values, um, very moralistic in a lot of ways. Uh, do you believe that television and films should teach? I think I'd answer that question. I'd have to know what you mean by moralistic. That sounds faintly pejorative to me. Uh, I, I don't know. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean. Well, when you, um, what are you trying to, well, maybe, maybe you should define it for me. What are you trying to, what are you trying to tell um, your audience? Okay, I think that uh, for me, the, the kind of writing that appeals to me the most is writing that, and the kind of writing that I try to uh, accomplish is um, the kind that... Uh, For 45 minutes on the tape, I ask Alan Alda question after question. I quote him egghead ideas from egghead books. And miraculously, he gives kind of a great interview, mostly by ignoring my actual words and trying to respond to what it is that I seem to be interested in. It turns out he's not interested at all in teaching anybody a lesson, a political lesson, a moral lesson. He hates that idea. His goal is much simpler. He's interested in stories that just capture the way people are. And I don't want to sound self-congratulatory. I mean, there are times that I, I don't think we make it. Plenty of times. I, 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 uh, there are things I see sometimes that I wince at. But we're always trying. That, that I'll, I will give us credit for. To reflect real experience. And the audience hasn't rejected us for that. And in fact, the more we've been able to do that, the more the audience has made us popular. But there were people in the beginning who said, oh, keep them out of the operating room. Nobody wants to see blood. That'll turn, off the, turn them off on the humor. If we had started a couple of years later, there would have been people who said, look, you got all those nurses. Let's show the nurses in uh, shorts and, and, and uh, halters, and let's uh, show them in their underwear, and show them, get them into wet T-shirts as much as you can, and stuff like that. Well, we, we pretty much didn't do that. This seems like a stupid thing to say, but the fact is a lot of people in the entertainment business are afraid that if you get too real, if you reflect experience too truly, that you'll scare people away, that they'll be bored, that it's not flashy enough or it's not, uh, it's not enter in quotes, entertaining enough. ago, I listened to these tapes over and over for months, cutting and recutting the interviews late into the night, trying to turn them into a radio story. I remember staying at NPR's headquarters, camped out in an edit booth long after everybody had left, day after day after day. But I didn't know what I was doing. I never finished the story. Ashamed of myself, I packed the tapes away in a little box, pushed my feelings about the whole thing into another different sort of little box, and then did what anybody does to move on. I tried to pretend that it never, ever happened. When I dream about M.A.S.H., the cast is polite, but it's clear that I did let them down. The problem with having a big, cringy moment on the set of one of the most successful series in the history of television 
is that the show doesn't really go away. I checked TV Guide, and where I live, in Chicago, MASH is on 10 times a day. It was my Grandma Molly's very favorite show. And for years after I visited the set of MASH, if she and I were ever together at any kind of uh, setting like a party or a wedding or any setting with lots of people around, she would tell everybody at some point, in a big voice, how I had gone to the set of MASH. And wasn't that incredible? And then everybody would gather around, people would get all excited, and they would start cavelling, and they would start to ask me, well, so what was it like? What was it like? And it was always hard to know what to do. And so there would always be this long moment where I summoned up the energy to say something. They're all really nice, I'd say. They're really, really nice. Coming up, when the person who makes you cringe might be cringing at you. And can you undo a cringe? Our non-scientific inquiry continues from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose some theme and bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, stories that make us cringe, and some thoughts about what it is about these stories that makes us have this physical reaction. We've arrived at Act 3 of our program. Act 3, Ariel Sharon, Shimon Perez, David Ben-Gurion, and me. December 3rd, 1986, Wednesday. Another fascinating day in the life of Adam Davidson. I have a math test tomorrow. I'm going to school early to tutor a girl in my class for the aforementioned test. My math class, a joint pre-calculus and calculus class, consists mainly of seniors not especially interested in learning. I guess that I'm the, quote, class expert, unquote, in that I always do the math problems which no one else can. And for this, I'm disliked. I guess that because I apply myself, think clearly, and do a little work, as well as some intelligence helping out, I am a geek. In truth, I am far from it. When you first um, read that to yourself, when you first saw it, uh, your reaction was? It was pure horror. Recently, Adam Davidson, an occasional contributor to our program, found his old high school diaries. Adam's mom is Israeli. His dad is American. Adam grew up in New York. His body was in New York. His brain, as the diaries reveal, was somewhere else entirely. I remember when I was writing it, I remember very clearly, although I don't, I don't say this in the diary, that it was very clear to me that 
This was the diary of the future prime minister of Israel, me, <laughs> um, that, that I would one day be prime minister. And it would be very important for history, for people to know the deep thoughts of a young Zionist as he prepared his way to lead his nation. Now, our, our regular listeners here in This American Life might remember that, that you've been on our program describing uh, your experience in Israeli army summer camp. That was right before I started writing this diary. Read, read me another. Sure. Let's see. Um, there's so much wrong with Jews and Israel that I'm going to have a job ahead of me. One thing is the lack of any strong Jewish identity among most Jews. This attitude sickens me. You Jews of the world, stop worrying about money and well-being. I do not know what exactly I'll do, but if this situation continues when I'm a bit older, then watch out, world Jewry, here comes Adam. And watch out, world Jewry, <laughs> here comes Adam was all in capital letters. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting that you actually are addressing a readership. I know, I know. That's what, that's what's kind of amazing. And that readership is is world Jewry. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I have this thing from January fourth, nineteen eighty-seven. I memorized the Hope Hatikvah, which is the Israeli national anthem, a few minutes ago. That will help me in Israel. <laughs> I, I find that really amazing. That. Here I am, the future prime minister of Israel, and, and what are the things I need? Oh, God, I need to know the national anthem. I'll probably That's be called right. upon to recite that at some point. At 16, I had such an inflated sense of myself. There was so much going on in my life then that I can remember, and I wasn't recording it. Instead, I was creating this ridiculous fantasy of, you know, I'm not just a 16-year-old kid who's you know, having crushes and, you know, a hopeless geek who can't get a girl to kiss him and being scared and confused about growing old. I'm I'm the future prime minister of Israel and everything, you know, goes through that. But I don't know. I mean, well, just but maybe the, but maybe keeping a diary where one tells the truth, maybe that's a, a luxury of being a certain, you know, kind of person in a certain kind of situation. Maybe maybe other people in another kind of situation need to actually make up a little fantasy. Yeah, I think um, I didn't have much angst about being the future prime minister of Israel. I was very calm and confident and comfortable with it. And I had so much angst about every other aspect of my life. And so <laughs> I now see it as just kind of a, maybe it was a good solution, you know. It was a good way to deal with this, with, with what I was going through, to have this space where I could just be, you know, one of the greats. I wonder what uh, the 16-year-old Adam Davidson uh, would feel in knowing that finally, you know, an audience of a million people was, was getting some of the reading from this diary. I think this would feel so small to that 16-year-old. This would feel so nothing. This would be so unimportant. Being on the radio. Being on a radio, a million people, what's a million people, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about history. We're talking about, you know, sweeping changes. 
Um, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that yeah that he would be thoroughly unimpressed. And Adam, what what would the 16 year old you think of you now? I think he'd be really disappointed. I think he'd be really sad because you're not the prime minister of Israel. Yeah, because I just have such a small life. I mean, I remember I was very disappointed and very sad about my parents. I mean, I was reading biographies, of course, of all the prime ministers of Israel. And and I would just think about my parents and just think, how do you wake up every day knowing that your actions won't affect millions of people? Like, how is that enough motivation? You know, just to have your petty little craft and your petty little family and your small little apartment like you know it just seemed pathetic and and i mean they have the kind of life that you know i mean basically i i want my for myself what you're saying though is is that the 16 year old you would be cringing at your 30 year old (laughs) right just as your 30 year old version is cringing at the 16 yeah that's very true yeah he would be very very disgusted if he heard this this radio piece, it would seem like I had settled in a pathetic way. Act four, cringe and purge. There are a lot of stories in your life that the more you tell them, the less power they have over you. You know, it's like they, they wear themselves out like chewing gum that stops having flavor. But cringe stories somehow do not seem to lose their power over time. Every time you remember, you cringe. So what do you do if you want to stop cringing? We have this story from Bruce J. Friedman about somebody who decides to take action. It had been a mild financial strain to take his wife and child to Europe, and so for the first week, Gribbets kept reminding them that they were in a special place, much better than Rockaway Beach or Cape Cod. You're drinking French water he would tell his son each time the boy took a glassful. And on the way to the seashore, he would lean back and say to his wife, fill your lungs with some of that French air. As for Gribbets, he tried to fill himself with enjoyment, to look everywhere at once, and afraid that by doing so, he was seeing nothing. Besides, he could not feel entirely comfortable because he had not seen a soul he knew. He tried to turn this into an advantage, telling his wife, isn't it great that we don't know a soul here, that we can just be by ourselves for a change? But actually, he longed to see just one familiar face, Henry Nestor, his insurance man, or even Uncle Hickey, who traveled to exotic places each year and raved about Miami hotels. It wasn't so much that he was lonely, but that he wanted his sense of reality strengthened. How else could he be sure he was in Europe, and that it was he, Gribbets, and not some fella in a dream? Each night, Gribbets and his wife would take seats at a sidewalk cafe and stare across the street at people in another sidewalk cafe. One night, he picked out a familiar face across the road and said to his wife, "Uh Uh-oh, I see one I think I know, only I hope I don't. Because if it's him, it's going to start a whole thing. He excused himself and crossed the street. The fellow he went up to was well-muscled and had a deep-seamed suntan, 
but also great swoops of hair that might have been more appropriate for a concert musician. Beside him sat a petulant wife and two girls in their early teens. I'll be brief, said Gribbets. Your name doesn't happen to be Carol, does it? And were you once in the Air Force? The fellow nodded, and Gribbets said, I'll be going back now. I just wanted to nail this down out of curiosity. Gribbets returned to his table and said, Well, it's him, all right. It's amazing what a whole cascade of things just came tumbling into my head. Well, i finally seen someone, and I know it's me, right here in Europe now. Only I wish that fellow had been one of at least 4,000 other people I could mention. On the way back to their villa, Gribbett said, Look, I'm not trying to be mysterious. It's the kind of story I just have to slide into, you know, when I get comfortable. I'm not even sure how important it is uh, right now. But he couldn't sleep that night. He got up, woke his wife, and said, Look, I've always been honest. What's really getting to me is that fellow I just told you about, the one I'd rather not have run into. I thought I'd just think it out and pass it by, but it's not working out that way. I'm just being honest. Don't be so honest, said his wife. The next morning, Gribbets called American Express, and then in the middle of breakfast, he suddenly shoved aside a croissant and said, look, I don't really love these. I don't see why I have to go through the motions. All right, now here's the deal. I'm going after that fellow. Let me rephrase that. I'm going to visit that sunburned guy from the cafe last night. What happened is, a long time ago, maybe 15 years now, he humiliated me in front of 250 guys. Don't ask me how he did it. I was a new officer. He was an enlisted man. It shouldn't have happened that way, but it did. I thought I'd forgotten all about it. I don't think I've thought of it once in the last eight years, but I guess it was simmering right there under the surface all along. Now, I've tracked him down to Gulf San Juan. He's out of the service now with some engineering outfit. Anyway, I'm off to check in on him now. And don't even think about talking me out of it. But there is one thing I've got to ask you to do. There's no effort involved. Just call me at this number in exactly an hour and a half. You know, I'm not really asking. This is one of those few marriage times when I've got to tell you just make the call. Well, that's it for us. All right, she said. But was there really a need to frame it exactly that way? It was a need. It was a need. Trust me, said Gribbets. I have no time to go into any psychology with you. Just start twirling that dial in une heure et demie. Gribbets drove for half an hour, checked his watch, and then stopped off at a roadside cafe to get 12 cooked snails to go. He was the only customer, and two restaurant troubadours asked if they could play and sing for him. Look, I'm not in that kind of mood, he said, but he finally allowed them to do Cuando, 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 a slow cha-cha popular in the States. As they sang to him, he thought about the Air Force and the thing Carol had done to him. Very simply, what happened was that Gribbets, on his second day as an officer in the Air Force, 
fresh from college, had been tossed into the thick of an experienced combat Air Force squadron of 250 men. One day, the entire squadron had been assembled for a weapons talk. Grivet sat at the back of the auditorium, knowing nothing, scared out of his wits that momentarily he'd be unmasked as an idiot. In the middle of the lecture, the phone rang, loud and clear, the speaker waiting for it to be answered. Gribbets, a few feet away from the phone, could think of no way in the world in which he could have assisted the caller, since there was nothing in the world he knew about the Air Force. So while the audience waited, he asked Carol, who was then a master sergeant, to answer the phone. Carol, after thinking it over for a second, said, No, with a queer little smile. Gribbett sat up then, and with all 250 men looking on, he asked Carol a second time to pick up the phone. I said no, Carol replied. And Gribbett, his collar suddenly strangling him, had run out of the auditorium on the fourth or fifth ring. The proper procedure, of course, would have been to bring court-martial charges against Carol for disobeying a direct order. And Gribbich, however untutored he'd been at the time, at least knew this much. But he had been just as frightened of his immediate superior and a court-martial procedure as he was of master sergeants and telephones. Doing anything then had been out of the question. Thinking about the incident now, he got a little hitch to his breath. It had stuck in his throat, and in many ways it spoiled his entire service experience just as meeting Carol the previous night now threatened to upset him for weeks to come. The troubadours ended their number, the snails arrived, and the check had an extra 20% added on for entertainment. I just wish I had time to argue, he said, as he paid the cashier. I take you right down to the wire on that entertainment crap. I didn't ask for it. It wasn't entertaining. He drove another 20 minutes or so, and after some muddling about in a cliffside community overhanging the waterfront, he found a house with the name Carol out front. Mrs. Carol answered the doorbell, and Gribbett said, Hi, I'm Leroy Gribbett, and I'm here to do some business with your husband. And I brought you some cooked snails. Uh, they make them all over the country, I know that. But I think you'll find these have a little extra zip to them. I mean, that's been my experience. And, you know, give some to the kids. Is your husband home? The woman called inside, then disappeared, and when the deep-seamed man came out, Gribbett said, How you doing, Carol? I'm the guy who approached you last night at the cafe. Now, to get right down to it, I'm AO223-4907, Grange Air Force Base, 1951-53, to the young kid adjutant of Squadron 4507, who you did that thing to? Carol, who was wearing rimless Ben Franklin glasses coming into vogue on the Côte d'Azur, took them off his nose, stroked his chin, and said, You know, I think I do remember. A young kid comes into the squadron, never done a lick of military, and comes in as an officer yet. The very kid, said Gribbets. 
And while you're unwinding the spool, see if you can remember the little business you pulled on me that I'm here for now, 15 years later. About the telephone? I do remember that thing, said Carol, taking a seat at a dinette arrangement. You mean when the phone rings and it's clearly the duty of the officer in charge to pick it up and you expected me, a master sergeant with 12 years duty on you, to do your dirty work for you and I wouldn't? That's the time, all right. You disgraced me, pure and simple, in front of 250 guys I could never look in the face again. You fouled up my whole time in the service. I don't think I got one good night of Air Force sleep. And don't think I didn't think about it plenty after my discharge. The thing is, it's 15 years later, we're both here in this house, and we're playing that little scene again, only with a different ending. In 20 minutes to the second, that phone is going to ring. And when it does, you're going to be the one to answer it. I always answer the phone when it rings, said Carol, beginning to pick his teeth. Look, now don't be any wise bastard, said Grivers, or you'll be hearing an entirely different kind of ring. You know damn well what I mean. I've got that phone set up to ring in 20 minutes, and it's no ordinary phone call. It's the same one from the squadron 15 years ago. We both hear it, and you're the one that makes a grab for it. Not me this time. And before you make any smart-ass comments, let me tell you why you're going to pick it up and not me. I mean, I may look the same as I did 15 years ago, the same general body outline and all, but actually I'm like four of what I was. I've been working out like a madman. The point is, I can get things done now, just about anything, anything I want if I concentrate hard enough. How do you think I pulled off this trip? I set my sails for it and bowled it through with sheer willpower. All right, said Carol. When does it ring? I told you when, said Grivens. When I said is when. You never should have done that thing to me. The phone rang, and Carol, after flicking at some rear molars, picked up the phone casually and said, Carol speaking, who's this? He listened for a while and then said, Okay, make a chopstick instead of cutlet d'agneau. That was the butcher, said Carol, laying down the receiver. All right, forget that, said Grivitz, checking his watch. Our call has another five minutes to go. Look, said Carol, why don't I just go beep, 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 pick it up okay, we got the show packed up, and we get out of here. Well, that'll be the day, said Grivitz. I'll bet you just love to pull something like that on me. They sat together in silence, and after two minutes, the phone rang again. Carol here, answering the phone as ordered, he said. He held the receiver aside and said to Griffiths, Now, you want me to just gab for a while? No, said Griffiths. Just what you did does it. Signing off, said Carol, and laid down the receiver. Gribbets, who hadn't realized how hard he'd been breathing, pulled out a handkerchief and pulled it across his brow. Well, that's done, he said. And what's done is done. Yep, said Carol. You've been here long, asked Gribbets. A year, said Carol. Do your kids have anyone to play with? 
They do all right, said Carol. Well, maybe they can come over and play with mine. Boy, wouldn't that be a hell of a turn? Look, all of this was just something I had to get out of my system. I know a little bit about myself. If I have something like that bothering me, it can throw off my entire life. It's just like a splinter. Do you know the kind of grief that can give you? I mean, am I getting through to you at all? I guess, said Carol, waiting with his hand on the door. Look, when I saw you, I knew I wasn't going to be able to relax until I'd come over here and gotten the damn thing done. I mean, now that it's done, to me, it's as if nothing happened. What I'm getting at is it was nothing personal. I mean, do you see that at all? I don't see much of anything, said Carol, opening the door for Gribbets to leave. All right, I'm going to get you for this, said Gribbets, taking his coat, for what you're doing right now. I don't care if it takes another 15 years. I mean, you can hide in the goddamn mountains of Tibet. I'll smoke you out and I'll beat your head till you're bloody because you have gone and spoiled my whole European vacation, you son of a bitch. Bruce J. Friedman's story, The Humiliation, can be found in a book that is called, simply enough, The Collected Short Fiction of Bruce J. Friedman. He has a new book coming out in September called Sexual Ponce. Our program was produced today by Jonathan Goldstein and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Bruce Chevney, and Starley Kine. Our senior producer, Julie Snyder. Elizabeth Meister runs our website. Production help from Todd Bachman and Annie Baxter, Seth Lind, and Sativa January. Musical help from Terry Hecker. Special thanks today to John Sherba, who played the theme from MASH for us on guitar. Also thanks to Larry Josephson, Marilyn Snell, Adam Davidson, Glenn Wurglitz, my mom, Shirley Glass, Aaron Brockovich, and Chad Lowe. Nancy Updike's story was produced partly with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting as part of hearingvoices.com. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org, where you can listen to our programs for absolutely free or buy CDs of them. You know you can download today's program on our archives at audible.com slash thisamericanlife. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. This American Life is made possible by Volkswagen of America and the Volkswagen Jetta. Reminding listeners that safe can happen anytime, anywhere. Volkswagen Jetta. Safe happens. And by Pals Books, an independent bookseller since 1971, presenting the Pals Books blog, a window to the world of literature, authors, and book-related news, on the web at pals.com. And by Picture House, presenting Robert Altman's film A Prairie Home Companion, starring Woody Harrelson, Tommy Lee Jones, and Garrison Keillor, in theaters June 9th. WB Easy Management Oversight for our show by Mr. Tori Malatia, who I just ran into in the hallway. It was weird. He said, Oh, no, I can't believe you're here today. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. PRI Public Radio International.